This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Juana Godano-Kenworthy, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Hunt, the author of the book We Begin Bombing in Five Minutes, Late Cold War Culture in the Age of Reagan, published in 2022 by University of Massachusetts Press as part of the series Culture and Politics in the Cold War and Beyond. Ronald Reagan's hagiography has created an entire mythology around the 40th president of the U.S. Anti-communism and his fight against the evil empire are at the center of how Reagan is remembered, particularly by conservatives in the U.S. to this day. But the historical reality of the period was not ideologically monolithic. Andrew Hunt's excellent book paints a nuanced picture of the complex landscape of the United States during Reagan's presidency, the decade of the so-called Second Cold War. From street protests and activism to conspiracy theories to widespread anxieties over nuclear war, uh, the era seems eerily familiar. We Begin Bombing in Five Minutes also captures in fascinating detail the enormous popular pushback to the anti-communist rhetoric of the Reagan regime and the role that popular culture played in reflecting and sometimes influencing the dynamics of the age. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for that excellent introduction. I'm very excited to get into this with you, but please, um, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about the genesis of this project? Sure, thank you. Um, I am a professor of history at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, where I teach U.S. history. Uh, And even though I was born in Canada, I was actually raised in the United States, in uh, California and in Utah. And so I have very vivid memories of living through the Cold War, of, uh, you know, especially these kind of fears of of nuclear war. I remember very clearly uh, being so deeply affected by watching uh, the day after on television in the fall of 1983 and really coming around to to um, support uh, the anti-nuclear movement and to oppose what my government was doing in uh, Central America and to sort of become part of these um, protest movements, which I myself actively participated in in the 1980s. So it was interesting to actually 
write about an area of history that I very vividly remembered, but trying also to kind of write about it in a sort of way that I hope was uh, uh, fair-minded and, and, and balanced, um, despite my own very strong feelings about the Cold War when I lived through it. So having lived through it, I think, really added a kind of personal dimension to uh, writing this history that hasn't really been there in other histories that I've written. And that, w- that made it both exciting and, I think, challenging, too. Yeah, it uh, it was wonderful to read it. As I was saying, I experienced the Cold War on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and uh, your book gave this wonderful insight into the dynamics of American um, culture at the time. So I like your your survey of American culture in the 1970s that tells the story of the last moments of the first Cold War, the one of the McCarthy regime and its aftermath. Um, tell us more about this period and how how you thought it's relevant for your overall project. The first Cold War was really a period of uh, an intensification of the Cold War in the late 40s, 1950s, early 60s in the United States. And that was a real uh, a flare up of anti-communism uh, in policymaking, uh, in foreign policy, in domestic policy. And it was accompanied by a sharp increase in uh, the Cold War culture in the United States, starting in the late 40s and, and throughout the 50s and into the early 60s, that really went hand in hand with an anti-communist foreign policy and also this kind of uh, McCarthyist uh, uh, sort of purge that was going on in the early 1950s in the United States that was uh, focused on the entertainment industry, uh, that was focused on labor unions, on uh, education and all kinds of walks of life where it was thought that progressives or people on the left might be having some sort of influence in society. And really when I started to uh, influ- when I started to um, investigate and research the second Cold War of the 1980s, I was really interested in this, sort of flare-up of the Cold War that was happening uh, after a prolonged period of detente in the 1970s. But what I discovered is that you can't really understand that uh, flare-up of the Cold War in the 80s without first understanding that large Cold War, that large red scare of the late 40s, 50s, and early 60s. And really, in fact, the period of the 70s is fascinating because that's really a moment in American history where the country is moving away from uh, the Cold War, uh, the, the, the really the kind of Cold War fanaticism of the McCarthy era, the, the purges and um, the rigid Cold War thinking, the Cold War policymaking, and moving in a much more open uh, diverse, inclusive direction that uh, is really rejecting that kind of old Cold War thinking and heavily influenced by the protests, the upheavals, the division, the um, uh, polarization of the 1960s. So the period that I'm looking at really is a kind of an attempt to sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again in the aftermath of um, all of these upheavals and protests and polarization and um, what some of these kind of old school cold warriors who want to revive the cold war in the 80s come up against is that the consensus that existed 
in the late 40s and 50s and even into the early 60s had been permanently shattered by the protests against the Vietnam War, by the various upheavals and the polarization and so forth. So this period I'm studying is very interesting because it's it, you see a revival of, of the Cold War and you see a revival of Cold War culture, but it's a very different kind of Cold War and very different Cold War culture than what existed before. That's right. Um, yeah, and and yet your book captures the fact that there was a nostalgia in it's to some extent for the 50s and um, a nostalgia for some of the trends of that first Cold War. Um, maybe you can tell us more about how Ronald Reagan weaponized this nostalgia in, in his uh, revitalization of the anti-communist discourse. Yes, for sure. This You're absolutely right that there was uh, a nostalgia for the 1950s um, that was re- very, very strong. In particular, actually, it enjoyed a, its its strongest period from about the early 1970s to about the mid-1980s. Uh, it's interesting that we see it underway already in the early 1970s. And I talk about that in the book uh, with uh, the creation of the television show Happy Days, which was influenced, inspired by the hit movie American Graffiti uh, from 1973. And these are movies that are very nostalgic, that very much celebrate, excuse me, (laughs) celebrate the 1950s and uh, what it was seen at the time as a kind of world that had been lost, uh, a kind of glorious 50s that you see it uh, in the revival of such television shows as Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, which come on in reruns in the 1970s and 80s. And there is this this kind of thought or this belief that there was this once glorious America of the 1950s that had been lost as a result of all the protests and upheavals and polarization of the 1960s, and that um, this this world was was one of of kind of malt shops and and cool cars and 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 innocent kids that went out on dates and they didn't obviously it wasn't there weren't any big protests and there weren't there wasn't all this kind of chaos and disruption of the 1960s. So you had this kind of um, nostalgia for the 1950s that was always there in American society throughout the 70s and 80s. And it influenced a lot of popular culture well into the 1980s. Um, The film Back to the Future is often thought of as a film that kind of um, built on that uh, those themes of celebrating uh, the 1950s as this kind of lost world of innocence and so forth. And Ronald Reagan very much played on that kind of nostalgia when he was uh, president of the United States. He he talked about a, a kind of a, a, a glorious America. He was actually, I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that he was actually the person that coined the term make America great again, that there was this idea that there was this grand America that had been somehow lost as a result of all the protest and upheaval and then demonstrations and so forth. And that that America 
uh, could be gotten back again. It could be gotten back and that it could be recreated and it could be uh, revived in a way that um, kind of brought back that innocence. And I think that that was kind of that nostalgia for the United States in the 1950s was a big part of what kind of fueled this Cold War revival of the Cold War and Cold War culture, it definitely went hand in hand with it. And so the two can't really be understood separately from each other. What's interesting is at the same time that you had this kind of revival or or romanticization of 1950s uh, society in America, which ignored all the blemishes and problems and inequality and so forth of the 50s and chose to emphasize this kind of blissful middle-class existence, you also had at the same time a, a kind of nostalgia for the 60s and for the kind of, and, and it, it was coming from a different part of American society, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a nostalgia for uh, sort of tie-dye shirts and, and, and hippie culture and the summer of love and all of these things that were also quite still quite potent and fresh in people's memories in the 1980s the 60s had only been you know 15 16 years earlier and so people who lived through that period had very vivid memories of it so it's interesting that you have these uh, two different forms of nostalgia emerging for eras that were kind of so close together <laughs> the 50s and the 60s but these nostalgias take on very different forms and they have different meanings and they're kind of embraced by different people. It tends to be more liberal people or more sort of left, left-leaning people who, who really look to the 60s as this great moment in history, whereas it tended to be more conservative people like Reagan who thought the 50s uh, was a period that people should really glorify and feel a lot of nostalgia for. So you see these two nostalgias kind of competing in really interesting ways against this backdrop of a Cold War revival in the 1980s, which makes it, I think, which makes nostalgia very fascinating in this period of time. Yeah, it's uh, as if nostalgia itself was being politicized um, and a polarization of nostalgia. Well, the uh, the Vietnam War was not exactly something that people were nostalgic about, uh, and and this was even closer to the eighties than the sixties were. So, tell us how the Vietnam War um, was remembered, and how groups engaged with its legacy. The Vietnam War, you're absolutely right, was still very fresh in people's memories in the nineteen eighties, and there was uh, a tendency when the decade began to avoid the topic altogether. There was this, this sense that the Vietnam War was this terrible tragedy, that it was something that had to be put in the past, that it was something that most people just didn't talk about. And so as the decade begins, you, you do see a few Vietnam War movies that are playing in the theaters that were... Um, quite powerful and hard-hitting, like uh, Coming Home and Apocalypse Now and and The Deer Hunter. But uh, for the most part, there's this kind of desire uh, in the late 70s and early 80s to sort of put the Vietnam War behind the country and try to move on. And that's why it's so extraordinary that a group of a, a group of fundraisers who were based in Washington, D.C., uh, which included uh, 
several Vietnam veterans began to raise funds for a memorial uh, to be built in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, and this process of raising funds for this memorial began in the late 70s. And it, it opened up with a, a, a competition to see who could design the best, most effective, most powerful memorial that would be most suitable to sort of honor the, the dead and to remember this war by. And the controversial design that was made by a Yale art student, Maya Lin, was chosen first uh, place by uh, a, a, a small group of, of judges. Uh, but that caused a huge backlash, um, especially among more conservative Vietnam veterans who thought that this new design, which was a wall with names that were uh, sort of uh, carved deep into it, a granite wall um, uh, that would remember all the, include all of the names of the men and women who had died in the Vietnam War, that there were, there were remarkably, there were um, a group of Vietnam veterans and, and other conservatives who thought that this was a slap in the face that this memorial did not sufficiently celebrate uh, the uh, Vietnam War and that it did not celebrate, in particular, the valor of the soldiers, they felt. And so actually the design of this new memorial caused a huge backlash. And what's interesting is there were quite a few Vietnam veterans who supported the memorial and who loved Maya Lin's design and who thought it was perfect for the mall in Washington, D.C., where it was going to go up. And But this created really one of the first controversies of um, the post-Vietnam War era about how the Vietnam War was remembered. And what's interesting is that as soon as the wall was built and dedicated after a huge firestorm, a massive backlash against it, uh, suddenly the backlash disappeared and everybody pretended like they were all on board with this memorial, that they supported it from the get-go, that that all of a sudden the, the fierce debates that it did not sufficiently justify the valor or heroism of the uh, men and women who had served there, suddenly those debates completely vanished. But I think the interesting thing about that debate, which was really so strong in the late 70s and early 80s, was that it it showed just how polarizing the Vietnam War still was in American life in the 1980s. And once the uh, controversy over the wall subsided, it erupted in other areas. And in particular, there were a lot of Vietnam veterans who were poets, who were filmmakers, who were writers, and they were really at the forefront of uh, anti-war, a strong anti-war sensibility that questioned the Vietnam War, that attacked it, that that questioned its morality. Uh, And many of these Vietnam veterans had themselves been active in the anti-war movement. And many of them um, wrote books. Um, Some of them, like Oliver Stone, uh, made films. And they portrayed Vietnam in a very critical light uh, and in a very anti-war light. Uh, And they were going up against more mainstream films like Rambo and um, uh, the uh, Missing in Action movies, which were these kind of over-the-top 
uh, action films that uh, had Chuck Norris as as Braddock in the Missing in Action films. Sylvester Stallone played uh, Rambo. And these are all about Americans who went back to Vietnam to kind of refight the war and try to save POWs who were there and this time defeat the Vietnamese. Well, these uh, anti-war Vietnam veterans came forward and said, no, this is not going to happen. You're not going to turn the Vietnam War into a fantasy to sell movie tickets. We're going to set the record straight. And so it's interesting that the people who were really trying to set the record straight weren't uh, sort of anti-war people who, who didn't serve in Vietnam, although some of them certainly certainly tried. But really the ones that were that were being heard the most, like Oliver Stone, were people who had served in Vietnam and who had who had a very strong anti-war beliefs and who said, wait a minute, this this Rambo stuff and 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 missing an action, this is this is not how we want the, this war to be remembered. And so you see films, you know, like Platoon and you see films like Full Metal Jacket and 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 so forth that have a much stronger uh, anti-war sensibility to them uh, in the theaters that are kind of competing. And, and I think that goes to show that the Vietnam War is still, uh, st- long after it ended, having a very polarizing effect on the American public. Yeah, and, and this also, I think it, it is linked to the dynamics of the Second Cold War, as much as the Vietnam War had been started under the banner of fighting communists uh, globally. Um, I, I found it fascinating uh, moving from uh, from the story of popular culture to the, the story of the real um, representations of anti-communism in, in uh, society. I found it fascinating to discover your accounts of the various groups that kept searching for communists in the 1980s in the midst of the American society, particularly the John Birch Society. Um, and and your account of their conspiratorial worldview, um, which in many ways seems very, still very current. <laughs> so uh, in what other ways was anti-communism resurrected in the Reagan mm-hmm. era? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Yes, anti-communism was actually still quite um, potent uh, in in the Reagan era, and um, you see lots of signs of it. As you mentioned, the John Birch Society, this this uh, small extremist group that was very very outspoken, and their their influence was much bigger than their numbers might indicate. Um, they really had an enormous amount of influence, and um, they uh, put out all kinds of books and, and booklets and, and videos. Um, they really mastered, uh, uh, these, uh, sort of short VHS films that they would kind of send out to schools and, and so forth. Uh, so even though they were small, they were very well organized and well-funded and they really kind of revived this, this sort of old school over the top anti-communism that, that communism was a, a threat, an immediate existential threat to America, that it was on the verge of taking over, that we have to watch out. It was really this kind of revival of this, this sort of old school red scare anti-communism from the fifties and early sixties that was so potent in those days. And, and in the, in the, in the eighties, most people, 
weren't too moved or swayed by that kind of John Birch approach. I think most of them thought that the John Birch Society was kind of crazy, that it was a, a fringe group, that they were just sort of peddling this kind of old school anti-communism that was very laughable, almost like reefer madness. It was just nobody really was too scared of it or thought that communists were really about to take over American society. So they didn't have the kind of influence. I think they kind of kept hitting a wall and they didn't have the kind of influence that they hoped they would have. But still, anti-communism was very potent and very powerful in the 1980s. It just manifested itself in different ways. You know, because you couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together, you couldn't sort of rely on this sort of old school Red Scare anti-communism of the 50s and 60s. You really had to sort of modernize and update it. And so that's why we see films like Red Dawn, which was a film released in 1984 that was uh, very much uh, a, a, a kind of updating of, of this sort of John Birch society type thinking, but an updating of it in a way that was aimed at kind of um, young people. It, was, it had a very anti-authoritarian sensibility, and it was about these, these teenagers in Colorado. Very, it's become kind of a famous cult movie in a way uh, because of how awful it is. But it, it, you know, it, was, it was full of violence, and, it was, and it, was, it was about these high school students in Colorado who sort of rise up against a Soviet takeover of uh, uh, the Soviets and Nicaraguans and Cubans come into the United States. And, you know, they quickly kind of brush over how they're able to take over the United States, which itself is comical. But then um, these these Wolverines, as they call themselves, these high school students uh, take up an armed guerrilla struggle against the Soviets. And, and, and the film was kind of a minor hit in, in the summer of 1984. It came out late in the summer in, in August of 84. And it had a, you know, draw mainly of these kind of young high school students like the one de- the ones depicted in the film who kind of came into the movie theater and cheered on the Wolverines and thought this was cool that they were fighting with guns and 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 all this kind of stuff uh, and it, it, it was a it was a still regarded as a kind of a, a, a an artifact of of the 1980s but it definitely sort of tapped into uh, an anti-communism that was still there still part of American society uh, that went hand in hand with um, fears of of the Soviet Union fears of Russia that somehow this country could still, take over uh, the United States if it wanted to, uh, unless Americans were vigilant and, and watched out. And so this this anti-communism was still always kind of there, and you see it uh, manifesting itself in, in, in other films as well from the era. But then there are also films that, that uh, again, the, the, the one interesting thing about the 80s that keeps coming back to the surface is how... Uh, popular culture keeps debating with itself. Uh, you know, they're, they're, for every anti-communist film you had, like um, Red Dawn, you had a lot of films that came along that kind of questioned anti-communism, whether they were uh, the John, uh, Warren Beatty's epic film Reds, which uh, portrayed a communist character in a very sympathetic way and was nominated for a whole slew of Academy Awards uh, in 1981 when it came out. Or uh, years later, um, 
there was a film called Red Heat um, with a Soviet police uh, officer uh, named, uh, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger who who goes after a, 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 a Russian bad guy with the help of a and Schwarzenegger's character has the help of an American cop in it uh, played by Jim Belushi and it's kind of an action comedy movie but it's very sympathetic to uh, to the Soviet characters so it's interesting how popular culture kind of keeps going back and forth you know it's it's there's no consensus and that reflects I think the kind of um, uh, you know, this, this attempt to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, just wasn't working <laughs> at all in the 1980s. So, yeah, well, maybe that was also because there were other things to be afraid of that were more tangible and more realistic than, than the prospect of the Soviet Union invading and taking over the U S and I think that in, in chapter five, your discussion of fear of prospect of nuclear war um, captured this larger anxiety, which unfortunately has come again to the fore of America's collective consciousness these days um, due to the war in Ukraine. So tell us more about the, uh, the, the decade of America's largest anti-nuclear, anti-proliferation protests, which are a, a key feature of the of the 1980s alongside this uh, rebirth of anti-communism. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, the the anti-nuclear movement and the 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 nuclear freeze movement, they, these these large scale movements that really uh, found great traction in American society even before the 1980s. Uh, in the second half of the 1970s, um, as soon as the Vietnam War had come to an end, and uh, a lot of anti-war activists. Uh, they didn't stop marching. They just switched their energy over from what had been anti-Vietnam War organizing uh, to organizing against the nuclear arms race. And uh, this movement found a lot of um, attraction. It found a lot of support throughout the 1980s. And it really resonated with the American public, so much so that when you go back and you look at polls that were taken um, in the um, early to mid-1980s, what you find is there was a great deal of public support for the nuclear freeze movement and for the nuclear disarmament movement. Uh, sometimes polls showing uh, you know, anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of the American public uh, supporting these movements. The, these were very potent movements. They uh, were grassroots. Uh, organizing efforts that were really taking hold, not just on university campuses, but in large cities and mid-sized towns alike across the United States. And like so many elements of the Cold War that we've been talking about in the 1980s, they also had a popular culture side to them. They it was, this, was, this was not just a grassroots movement. This was also a, a, a parallel movement in popular culture by uh, writers, by people who made music, by people who made movies and art and so forth to make um, all kinds of art uh, and film and music about uh, the, the prospect of nuclear war. And so we see this kind of 
anti-nuclear culture really flourishing in the United States uh, in the period. And some people forget that one of the largest um, demonstrations of in the United States against uh, nuclear war actually happened. In fact, it's it's the largest um, protest march in the history of the country ever happened in the 1980s in, in 1982 when um, the uh, massive uh, anti-nuclear march in June of 1982 the swept through um, Manhattan uh, with over a million people marching uh, in the streets. Uh, nothing like that had ever of that size and scope had ever been seen at, in one single place during the Vietnam War. Of course, there were moments during the Vietnam War when lots of different marches occurred at the same time in different cities, but nothing of this size and scale. So it's 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 easy to forget that the 1980s really was a kind of, um, uh, and, and the anti-nuclear movement reminds us of this, that the 1980s really was a kind of renaissance of protest. And um, we sort of tend to think of the 60s as being more of, a, of an era of protest, but uh, the, this protest was very effectively mobilized by an, an, an anti-nuclear movement that had been organizing already by this time for years and years since the 1970s. And they uh, had all kinds of accomplishments like the um, No Nukes um, album that, that many uh, groups in the late 70s and, and artists in the late 70s uh, participated in, uh, including Bruce Springsteen, uh, Bonnie Raitt, uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, and countless others. So um, this, was a, this was definitely a movement that had both grassroots support and also uh, a real strong cultural element and ultimately gave us one of the most powerful films of the decade, the day after that aired on ABC. It was kind of seen as kind of the high point or the apex of this movement when the day after came on in the fall of 1983 and was watched by millions of people across the country. Yeah, you, you mentioned also that Ronald Reagan saw it. Um, can you tell us more about that? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a that's a, a great question. Ronald Reagan actually watched the day after um, when it came on. Not only did he have an advanced screening of it, uh, he watched it again when it was on television, and he watched it a third time. He he watched the the show over and over again. He became obsessed with it, really. Uh, it was something that he watched over and over again. And it really had a sobering effect on him because Reagan had told himself up to that point that a nuclear war was winnable, that, that you know, he, uh, he, 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 he said that in his speeches, that, uh, that nuclear war was something that, that could be fought and won, uh, and that once the day after came on, he really had a, uh, he really did a lot, began to do a lot of soul searching and, um, the movie had a profound effect on him. And in fact, he, uh, sent a telegram a few years after it was made to the director of the film, Nicholas Mayer that said, uh, and the telegram was sent to Mayer at about the time Reagan was meeting with Gorbachev at the summits. And, uh, and, and they, they were, there were talks underway for nuclear disarmament and Reagan told Nicholas Mayer, this is really because of you <laughs> that this is happening. And it was something that Nicholas Mayer, needless to say, he held onto the telegram. He still has it. And it really had a big impact on him because he saw 
what a huge, huge influence the day after had, not just on the American public, but on Reagan too. And this was a, an important turning point in the in the Cold War culture of the 1980s. Uh, an important milestone was the airing of the day after. Yeah, yeah, this is fascinating. Um, the the impact of a, of popular culture, uh, and in even not only reflecting but also shaping some of these trends. Um, so another thing that I would like to hear more um, from you is the way the um, U.S. involvement in Latin America was part of the larger narrative of anti-communism during the Reagan years and also how it was reflected in popular culture. Yes. Yes, that's that's a great point. Um, Latin America, Central America in particular, really took center stage in the 1980s in American society uh, as Washington, D.C. began to pursue more aggressive policies in the region, uh, supporting a very autocratic, uh, a very brutal regime in El Salvador uh, with huge amounts of, of support, material, uh, uh, weapons, uh, training, and um, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of aid, ultimately. Uh, and also, um, the United States government was also targeting the newly formed Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Um, and, uh, you know, Reagan uh, was insistent that the Sandinistas were, were terrorists, that they uh, were Marxist-Leninists, that they were bringing revolution into the region, that they were uh, exporting revolution into their neighboring countries, into Honduras, Guatemala, and particularly El Salvador. Uh, there was a guerrilla war going on at the time that was very large in, in El Salvador. So there was a lot of apprehension in the United States by the early 1980s that Washington, D.C. might repeat something like the Vietnam War, but much closer to home uh, in Central America, either in El Salvador by supporting the uh, right-wing government there uh, and the death squads there against the uh, 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 Ferabundo Marti uh, liberation front, the, the, the guerrillas, or that they might... Um, uh, support, uh, they might start sending troops in to support uh, the Contra rebels in Nicaragua who were fighting to oust the Sandinistas. And indeed, Washington gave huge amounts of aid to uh, the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. Uh, and it was became a, 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 an important rallying cry and a point of dissent for millions of Americans who became involved with uh, Central America solidarity work uh, in communities across the country. And by about 1982, 83, 84, we really see in the United States a, a, a grassroots movement that's uh, almost as large as the anti-nuclear movement that's really taking hold uh, to protest U.S. involvement in um, Central America, uh, in particular the destructive Contra war that was uh, being funded by Washington, D.C. And this was a, an, a remarkable, sustained, popular protest in America that, again, just like the anti-nuclear struggle, went hand-in-hand hand with uh, movies that were being made about Latin America, um, films like Missing, uh, which was an Academy Award winner, powerful film directed by Costa Gavras and 
1982 uh, with Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek, um, which was about Chile, but was still uh, building on a lot of the themes of, of Washington, D.C., supporting these repressive governments in Latin America, and in this case, the Pinochet regime in Chile. Um, and by the mid-1980s, there were a whole bunch of movies that were set in Latin America, films like Oliver Stone's uh, film Salvador, a powerful film about an American gonzo journalist who goes to El Salvador to investigate the death squads, uh, films like Under Fire set in Nicaragua during the revolution. And these films uh, sort of parallel the protest efforts that were going on, and they were all very critical of, of uh, America's policy, of U.S. government policies in Central America. And it's fascinating to see that because it's this was a, a like I said a, a large scale grassroots protest movement. Then, and one of the other interesting dimensions of it is that large numbers of Americans we'll never know the exact number tens of thousands, maybe ultimately hundreds of thousands traveled to Nicaragua to see for themselves what the revolution was like. I was indeed one of those uh, people who traveled to um, Nicaragua in, in 1984. And I saw for myself that, you know, what I was hearing from the Reagan administration was just not based on, had no basis in the truth. And that, that the Sandinista regime was actually trying to bring uh, literacy and, um, um, healthcare and medical, all kinds of dental care and so forth to, to the people, housing and, and, and so forth. And the Contra war was really doing uh, uh, so much destruction to those, to those humanitarian efforts that were going on down there. So that movement really gained a, a lot of strength by the mid-1980s and had a strong, sizable grassroots participation uh, across the United States and had a big impact on poll numbers too, like the polls that showed support for the anti-nuclear movement. Most opinion polls by the 1980s showed that the majority of the American people were opposed to uh, aid to support the Contras. Wow. Oh, this is, this sounds like an amazing, uh, amazing personal experience of the material you, you, you write about in the book. Um, thank you for sharing it with us. So the end of the Reagan administration coincides with the gradual demise of the Cold War. And here we are three decades on, and still it seems like the tropes of the Cold War still inform many American political battles, right? From universal health care to mass mandates during the pandemic or, uh, I don't know, gun regulations. Um, do you think that we are in a long Cold War? Are there any continuities in the present um, that can overlap the those that you found in the period you research in the book? How do you see the, the present in relationship to the late Cold War culture? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I definitely see the parallels, uh, and, and certainly I, I detect um, a lot of the same kinds of rhetoric uh, a lot of the same themes that are that that uh, uh, you can sort of trace a direct line uh, from the present back to uh, back, you know, thirty plus years, as you said. You were, we're now looking at a a Cold War that um, supposedly ended more than thirty years ago, but we still see a lot of the same kinds of 
Cold War thinking uh, manifesting in um, in the form of different policies in Washington D.C., uh, um, but I also think that um, it, it's even though I, I think that there's some striking parallels between the Cold War of the late '80s and early '90s uh, and and some of the rhetoric that we see today and some of the policies we see today. I also think what we're sort of facing today is also, in many respects, also a different animal. Um, that uh, that you know the these communist governments in in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc uh, fell one by one. That 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 um, communism and and anti communism were a very very important part of that Cold War, and we're not really seeing the revival in that respect, I think, in, in quite as much of a, of a sharply ideological way. Uh, we don't really see uh, the, the um, uh, same level of, of uh, ideological um, uh, ferocity, too, that some of the anti-communists, like the John Birch Society, and, and, and even, even Reagan, before he kind of softened a little bit by the mid 1980s and and a lot of conservatives uh, exhibited in the 1980s um, but but you still see some of the some of the same rhetoric but it's interesting that 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 you know times change definitely uh, it, one of the main driving forces behind the Cold War in, in the United States in the early 80s was the Republican Party who were, were very uh, anti-communist and very interventionist and supported all kinds of foreign policies that that pushed the government to become more involved in other parts of the world like Central America and Angola and other parts of the world where the Reagan administration was funding these anti-communist guerrilla movements. Uh, but what's interesting is, is that now the, the Republican Party has become much more of a of an isolationist party that's moved away from from that kind of um, interventionist approach to uh, world affairs. So definitely things change, but but you can certainly trace a lot of straight lines um, to some of the developments we see going on now back to the uh, late 80s and early 90s, that's for sure. Well, thank you, Andrew Hunt, for talking to us today, and best of luck in your future research uh, ventures. Thank you, Ona. It's, it's great talking to you. I appreciate this opportunity.